0: Hey there, this is John Swan, and I'm your host today for this special bonus edition of The Hive Jive. This bonus episode is brought to you by
1: Ricked B. Ken, guess what? We're global. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I don't think I want to be up north where it's fifty one degrees what? below zero. Can bees live in that? <laughs> My honey damn sure won't flow. No, that it'll it'll actually go into suspended animation at that point, but well, like uh... alligator in North Carolina.
0: I, uh, I was actually, so I was looking at the stats for the podcast, and we have obviously the United States. Woohoo! Uh-huh. Um, we are also being picked up in Canada, the United Kingdom, Turkey, and Germany. So we're worldwide. Yeah, that's what's we're like. We're just like ZZ Top. <laughs> it's not a, it's, you know, I mean, we haven't quite gone viral. It's not an epidemic, no, 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 but no, we no. can keep hoping and praying, you know, oh, it's, it's, it's out we'll there. We'll get
1: there. We'll get there.
0: The uh, So, yeah, um, since how we are all over the place. If we look down through at the United States, if we wanted to give shout-outs real quick, we've got uh, Hometown Austin, Texas. Hey. That's uh, top of the list. And then we have Ashburn, Virginia. We've got Chicago, Illinois, Round Rock, Texas, Bourne, Texas, San Jose, California, Rosetown, Canada, Houston, Texas, Richmond, Texas, and Munster, Indiana. That Munster, is that,
1: is that where cheese is made? I, it might be. I
0: guess. I kind of like some Munster cheese. Yeah, so. I know. The um That's actually, so if we round all that out and everything, it's it's really kind of cool. It makes me excited. It's like, hey, look, there's lots of people out there listening. It's spread all
1: across well, the place. You know, well, that's why we're doing it, just because if you like to eat, we've got to have bees. That's right. And if you are in one of them states
0: where it's negative 51, because everybody had this it, it, giant arctic it's blast. It's going to get
1: to 70
0: here. Yeah. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um Don't hate on us. Our bees will be out working this evening. Oh, yeah. They'll be out this afternoon. Yeah. Anytime it's above sixty, they're out there and they're they're doing their thing, but apparently up in Chicagoland, uh, we had a listener who. Found our podcast, mm-hmm. and she went through, since how she had nothing better to do,
1: um, <laughs> It's cold up here, guys, she, and I don't want to dig my way out of this house. Yeah, she uh, she listened to the the podcast,
0: and and uh, she actually reached out to me on Facebook Messenger, I believe, through the, the Instagram, or through the Instagram, Facebook Messenger through the Hive Jive, at the Hive Jive. Uh-huh. And so her name is Terry Rossi, and she comes from Chicagoland in the northwest Indiana at the shores of Lake Michigan. Again, is kind of the vicinity that she's at. And
1: she's decided they actually should rename the area Chiberia due to the uh-huh. recent cold snap. It must, you know, I'll tell you what that, I'm looking at her questions. This woman is, she took notes. She, she did. And so what we're actually going to do for this,
0: this bonus episode here of the Hive Jive for you guys, Ken and I are going to go through, and this is going to be our first listener question episode for our bonus episodes. Mm-hmm. And like the rest of the bonus episodes, we will have, you know, multiple things things that will come out throughout the podcast. And so there's going to be multiple parts to the, the listener question. So mm-hmm. if you guys are listening and you have questions about beekeeping, shoot us an email at info at And we will be more than happy to compile those in. And when we get enough of them to do a full episode, we'll go through and, and we'll address those questions. And in the, the case of Terry, um, she had one or two small questions that um and yeah, I say what? that I say that with air quotes yeah. around it cuz she's sending enough questions it's going to take up the whole yeah, episode it's be,
1: yeah let's <laughs> go it's, I mean like number 1 she's asking she does the queen head let's see a red a, a texas red headed mutt no that's not a red headed <laughs> mutt i mean she she's talking about dotting the queen right yeah painting the queen's head yeah so she was asking
0: um she's noticed when she sees pictures and stuff online that some of those Queens have a dot on them. Mm -hmm. And she was curious, like, is that something that we're actually doing? If it is, what does it represent? Um, you know, there's color codes and stuff to it. So yes, if a queen is marked that marking one, it does help a new beekeeper identify the queen and see her spot her easier in the colony Mm -hmm. and know that it's their queen that they put in, but there's a color code system to it. And there are, I think five colors. You've got white, yellow, red, green, and blue. Um, Apparently, on the international scale, there's also gray, but I don't know why you would do that, because it would kind of blend in with the bee itself, but... The color scale represents the ending number in the year. So if the year ends in one or six, it's going to be white. Mm -hmm. If it's two or seven, it'll be yellow. If it's three or eight, it'll be red. If it's four or nine, it'll be green. And if it's five or zero, it'll be blue. So the queens that come out this year for 2019, Mm -hmm. if you want them marked, they're all going to be stamped with a green dot on the back of their um, thorax.
1: I want mine to be. Turquoise.
0: I'm not marking your queen skin. <laughs> <laughs> so there's not anything wrong with doing it, um, but if you're doing it yourself, it is. It's you've got a catcher. You have a special contraption you put her in that holds her steady, and then you've got a marker. If you goof up, you can accidentally cover up her eyes. Um, if you get you know too much or put her in when it's you know, fresh, you take the you can rust oleum. Go no, you No, she doesn't need rust proofing. But. You know, you can order your queens that way, but they do have an upcharge for it. If you want the queen marked or if you want
1: the queen clipped, which means they clip one of the wings so she can't fly, they charge a little extra for that. What a way to segue into this next question. You were just talking about, uh, you know, you can buy the queens. And she asked here, if the queen, the queens are raised by by the colony, but how do you put in a queen that somebody brings in? Like... If I wanted to change my beehive, my colony, to maybe take out the the African, uh, eyes and put a different queen in. Now that will take a process of several months to really get it right, but you put a different queen in, how do they accept her? Well, is that so, what she's asking that question here? Is that uh, kind of what she's asking? So she's I think she's actually asking, like, if the if the
0: bees are raising the queens or create the mm-hmm. queen, then and how do the queen sellers themselves insert themselves into that process? So we can actually we can cover both ends of that from the, the get go. Yes, the bees can obviously raise their own queens. Right. That's what they do in the wild. That's they select the egg at the right age. They feed it the copious amounts of royal jelly and they turn it into a queen. Now that queen, you you may or if it's a feral colony, you may or may not know the genetics of that egg. So then you don't know the genetics of the mother herself. And then when that virgin queen goes off and mates, you have no control over those genetics either. Now where the queen breeders come They're in special localized areas where they either don't have, like for us, we have Africanized genetics. Right. So they may be in a place where there are no Africanized bees. They can open mate. And what they'll do is they'll flood those drone congregation areas by having... Apiaries set up in strategic spots so that they're producing lots of drones that have the genetic qualities they want. And then they set up their queen raising apiary in a location where those queens will then intersect with those drone congregation areas and be mated and you'll end up with a better lineage of actual queen in there. So they do this on purpose. The other thing they can do is actually artificial insemination. So you can take a pure blood queen and you can artificially inseminate her with the exact genetic profile or lineage mm-hmm. that you want her to have. Those cost a pretty penny, but that's no how doubt. they can get that. And you take those things and then the, the queen breeders and sellers then sell them to the other beekeepers so that now you can take your potentially feral queen and you can do, as you said, and you can requeen the colony right okay and when you do there's an acceptance period obviously she smells different you go through and you put her in there and you have to wait. Um, You leave her in her cage. There's a candy into it that they Mm -hmm. have to chew through. And that kind of gives you a three-day buffer for them to kind of get used to her and accept her before they let her out. Because otherwise, if you just drop her in there, they'll kill her. She's not our mom. She doesn't smell like us. She's an intruder. They'll kill her. So once they do accept her, it's a minimum six-week period before you start seeing any changes in the behavior and the coloration and the genetic profile. And then as you move off, you know, that second and third month Mm -hmm. and things, Then the whole colony starts becoming her genetic profile as she's laid more brood and they start to emerge. And then you've you've literally changed the entire makeup of your colony by changing the
1: queen. And that's what you want to do because you're trying to make a, a very aggressive bunch of bees into more of a docile. But if they will they keep part of the aggressive nature? Become they're not a you don't want them to be aggressive. You want them to be workers. And the the that's one thing about and that's why the Africanized bee was trying to be the guy that created them. He knew that the African bee was more of a honey producer, and he was trying to tone them down by putting the European bee into them breeding, but yet all he did was made a mean-ass European bee.
0: Yeah, he was trying to take something that could survive in these hot, arid places and something that still made a lot of honey and put the two things together to create a bee that could be more more temperate or work better in a tropical or, or arid environment. And that the first round of experiments created several colonies that were, like you said, they were mean as hell. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately they escaped. And mm-hmm. then they started swarming crazily because this profile that they introduced in there was not used to ever happen to be somewhere where it needed to store up a lot of honey. Mm-hmm. And so it was like at the drop of a hat, it would swarm and go. So they just prolifically spread and they started moving north. And so mm-hmm. they, yeah, they up started out of Brazil in South America. Yeah. They start moving up out of Brazil mm-hmm. and start heading towards the, the North American continent. And mm-hmm. they made it all the way up in until they got basically to the Mason Dixon line and uh, the temperature change there. That's where the genetics kind of then didn't do them the justification because since how they're like, oh, well, we can leave tomorrow. It doesn't matter. They try that up there and then there's no food for them and they'll starve out and die out over the winter. So they
1: don't really cross that divide. I know that here in Texas, for instance, we have the African genetics, but they're not, they're still aggressive. Don't get me wrong. They're very aggressive. But a lot of your bees have, the beekeepers, the master beekeepers I talk to, you know, they say, Ken, they are still very aggressive, but they have kind of toned down on some of the hives, it's they've, not all. as
0: not as bad as it used to be. Yeah, because we—it's very rare that we run into 100% fully Africanized mm-hmm. genetics. Now everything, you know, you've had from the 80s all the way up where they've all interbred.
1: Texas redheaded. And that's mutts. where you get those
0: Texas redheaded yeah. mutts. It's a mixing pot of everything, so that it does help. We, it's kind of a roller coaster. Some of them will have some of the attributes, but not necessarily the aggression, and that's kind of more what we want because if you look at the scale for like different characteristics of those bees, the Africanized bee is one of the ones that has the best rating on Varroa resistance because they're, you know, they're uber aggressive at everything, including cleaning themselves. And so that would be something we would love to have those traits mm-hmm. and mix it in. We, we just don't want the attitude
1: that mm-hmm. comes with it. Yeah. Number three, the th- third question. I'm not, you're going you're gonna to have to help me on this. the bee <laughs> colonies that are not kept in a hive. Feral colony. Okay. Okay. Feral colonies, okay. I'm sitting here, okay, okay. Uh, and but uh, coming a tree are hanging hanging in a cave, and uh, that originate in an open natural setting without human intervention are more vulnerable to collapse and destruction, or can they also remain healthy in a natural setting? Well, hell, I've, I've seen trees out there that's had bees, the same qual col- you know colony or high or nuke uh, the same. Sale that's been there for as long as I can remember. So, what we've experienced, uh,
0: managed or not, if you take a colony and you set it up, that initial colony can survive for about three years with no intervention from people. At that three-year mark, depending on the genetics that are mm-hmm. in the colony, a lot of times they end up Crashing or collapsing. And it's due to by that point, the mite infestations have gotten to the point where the bees can't keep up. They've interjected a lot of viruses and things in there that then weaken the immune system of the bees. And then, of course, obviously, the things that we as humans do to the natural environment pesticides and chemicals and fungicides and things like that that all gets brought into the colony and and eventually it hits a peak and they will crash out. But one of the things that makes it hard to test that or to see that in the wild is that when a swarm comes through later, so say you Mm -hmm. do have bees in a tree Mm -hmm. and those bees establish a colony, they draw out the comb, they live there for three years, they die. Mm-hmm. But then that next spring, a swarm is looking for a place to live. The scouts go check it out. It smells like bees. They look inside and they're like, oh, my God, it's fully furnished. We can mm-hmm. move right in. Mm-hmm. And a new colony will move in and take up residence there. So we may not even realize that that colony has completely changed over and died out okay. and a new one okay. has taken its place. So, but, yeah, three years seems to be, at the moment, kind of the, the maximum lifespan if there is no type of um, intervention. But there are other cases, though, because when a colony requeens itself there's a break in the brood cycle mm-hmm. that also creates a break in the mites life cycle and that can buy some colonies time in a natural feral colony some of them especially if they've got a lot of african genetics they'll swarm multiple times a year instead of just once so every time they swarm the queen leaves that new queen has to be born takes her a couple of weeks before she goes and mates then she lays eggs and it takes them 21 days before they emerge you have a break in that cycle and that lowers the amount of mites in the colony because they can't
1: reproduce if right. There's no brood, so okay. Some of these questions, we I think we can, we can speed up maybe on this one rooftop beekeeping. Ah, are we talking about putting the bees, the hives on top of your house? I would, um,
0: I think it all depends on the environment that you're in. So she is up in the Chicago area. Oh, okay. Or the
1: high rises. Yeah, Yeah, so like
0: in Chicago and New York and some of these major cities, you may not have a lot of real estate where you actually have yards and things, so people will start doing rooftop beekeeping, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with it. There's also not necessarily any advantages to it. It's more of a you're working with your space, and you want to do something, but you just have to make what space you have work. One of the Downsides to it though is that bees are very economic or economical when it comes to um, actually, I should say, they're very efficient when it comes to their foraging. Mm -hmm. And so if they're way up in the air, you've now increased the distance that they have to fly down that tall building to get to the natural forage. And then they've got to carry that all yep. the way back yep. up, yep. which means they're going to burn fuel doing it. Yep. So they, they end up with less actual resources. And to they are going to fight wind. Yeah. All kinds of things. Yeah. Um, there was an instance here in town that you mentioned where we had an individual who thought it was a bright idea to put them on oh, the top yeah. of a, one of the Hyatt hotels. Actually, yeah. it was the W, I think. The yeah. W
1: Hotel. Over there. Yeah. Had
0: several bee colonies up there, and it all seemed great, and everybody was happy because we're saving the bees. Um, except the bees decided that you know what, instead of flying, you know, 40 plus stories down to the ground to find food, we can go down three stories to the rooftop pool, and there's lots of sugary drinks there. <laughs> and um, it turned into chaos. I can see that. The individual that did put the bees up there was then conveniently nowhere to be found, and the rest of us, responsible people, had to go remove those colonies and take. <laughs> back off uh, the roof uh, uh, so there can be consequences to to that you have to well, think it out <laughs> did he have
1: langstroth hives they were could... standard langstroths okay yeah. that was easier than a, than a top bar oh, okay God, yeah. uh now next one uh how can you tell if an environment will affect the honey? Ooh, I wonder I wonder really where she's going with this. If she means like flavor or if she means like toxicity. That that could kind of go either way. So Yeah, because your flowers, you're gonna take talk about flavor there. And up there in the springtime, they've got so many flowers. Oh, they do. They're, the amount of honey that they can make compared to what we can make puts
0: us to shame. We've got a much longer growing season than yeah, we we joke Texas hey, guys, honey's
1: that- a much better flavor. And <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> not that he's yeah. biased. Yeah. You know, but we oh. joke,
0: oh, sorry that you have this winter vortex and it's going to be negative 50. It's going to be 70 here today. We make yeah. that joke. But yet when your spring hits up north, man, it just it's full on and it goes. Um, and down here, ours just kind of slowly trickles along. Mm-hmm. So we when you look at the aspect of what your environment can do for the honey, yeah, it can add different flavors and profiles based on the forage that's out there and the flowers that grow and bloom. And those change throughout the season. But if you're looking at it from like toxicity, from a pesticide standpoint, Yes. If you're in a highly agricultural area and they treat and spray their (laughs) crops, the bees will pick that up. It's going to express itself in the nectar. It's going to be on the flower. It'll be in the pollen. The bees are going to carry that back to the colony and it will show up in your honey. So when they do lab tests of honey, Mm -hmm. it's scary how many chemicals that are used in agriculture are in that honey. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, If you can get it, it's hard to certify something as organic because the bees go wherever the hell they want. But if you can get it from a place where there's a Lot of native prairie land and no
1: agricultural crops, Mm -hmm. that's going to be better for you as far as the toxicity goes. Now, this one, uh, (laughs) this is an easy one, I can even answer this. Would it be a good idea to find out if you're allergic to bees before considering to be a beekeeper? Uh, Yes, go ahead. How how would you find out? Well, hell, you just put the bee on there and let him sting you. If your tongue swells up and you can't breathe, yep. You're allergic to bees. That's easy enough to find that one out. That is
0: an easy one to find out. The true allergy, if a bee stings you and your hand swells up like a baseball mitt or it swells all the way up to your shoulder, I hate to tell you this, but that doesn't mean you're allergic. That is no, the actual but, but natural tongue. reaction to a bee sting. It's nature's way of saying, that was dumb. Yeah. Don't do it again. But if you get stung on your hand and you break out in a rash all over your body and, and your, your throat tongue starts swelling and, and, and your you tongue can't starts breathe. swelling, that's the true allergic yeah. reality um, uh, reaction to it. You better go I, find one of them high dollar damn pins. I had uh, one of the gentlemen that was apprenticing with us, who's now one of our, our contract employees doing the removals. He had never been stung. And and he kept, well, I, I think we should get stung, you know, because we're in full body armor when we do this. And mm-hmm. he's like, I think I need to get stung. And he had one day where he's like, oh, oh, I think I just got stung. And I looked at him and I was like, seriously, you're going to say, I think I did. You didn't get stung. About 20 minutes later, you hear this scream with a four letter cuss word come out. And I was like, now you got stung. And he goes, man, that hurts.
1: <laughs> you know, this next question, we just talked about about me and you just talked about this one you mentioned in the cold weather uh adapting that the drones and the brood are moving up and they eat the food stores does that mean that the top bar Would be the best in case, you know, over in case for the scenario of hot, cold weather? Or would the Langstroth be the best?
0: Yes. So in a winter cluster, the bees are huddled together and they're vibrating to generate heat. And in a Langstroth hive, all of the food stores are directly above them. So that heat is naturally rising up and kind of warming that food. Mm -hmm. And what that cluster does through the winter is they slowly move up and they eat their way up through the colony until they reach the very top. Right. And then in the spring, they're at the top. She lays eggs all the way to the bottom. And right. They where is empty. Yeah. So in a top bar, you end up with something that is running long ways and doesn't have any food stores above it. All the comb just goes side to side. OK, I see what
1: you said. OK, so, I see now. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, it's a great question. I would say, you know, if bees are living in a tree that fell down. It's the same thing. The comb is going to be running long ways instead of running up and Mm -hmm. down. And there is no huge gap above them. So the heat's not escaping. So it can Mm -hmm. move over to the next comb Mm -hmm. and they'll, they'll just eat from side to side instead Mm -hmm. of eating from bottom to top. I think it would work, but the big thing is going to come into how well you insulate that hive. So the Langstroth's up North, they wrap them suckers like six inches to a foot worth of insulation around them. And you would need to do something similar to your top bar to see if it actually goes out there. We have, uh, I'm not sure where she's actually at, but we have a follower um, on Instagram. She's Melissa Top Bars. Mm-hmm. And she just does top bars. And I did see she posted a picture of top bars and they have snow on them. But, I mean, she could be, you know, central part of the U.S. and still right. get the snow. So, it would be interesting to find out if anybody up north in those northern states successfully keeps top bars and, and kind of answers that for us. That would be great.
1: Yeah. Y'all that's listening to this, send us an email on that. It, do y'all wrap? I mean, you've got to wrap your top bars. You have to wrap them, yeah. And, and then can you successfully overwinter them? Do they survive or- uh, do they crash out? Something I want to know. Do they have to take the insulation off of the 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 Langstroth or the top bar once it becomes warmer? Uh they usually do, yeah. Because it's it in you're, it's literally wrapped all the so way around, just so you're more inhibiting. Work. Yeah. But you
0: if you don't, like you have to take it They're all off get because there's a hell in there. Well in the spring you've got to go yeah. through and you have to move the boxes and open the tops and move the bars. So all that has to come off. Oh yeah. When springtime okay. comes. Well, yeah,
1: okay, okay. Yeah, here in Texas, you know, we don't work. Worry about getting cold in the winter time. Yeah, we don't have to wrap our bees, That's <laughs> <No>. for sure. <laughs> in fact, they're out there working. if you're if it's seventy degrees and it's January and you're drinking a Coke. All right. a soft drink, you better check in the can before you <laughs> pour it again, because the next one could have a bee in it. And that's all <laughs> I'll say. And I have done that. Words of experience. <laughs> yes. Uh, now, her mother ancestor, or she, is a Slovenian. Yeah, her mom comes from uh, Slovenian ancestry, mm-hmm. and she had kept bees at home. And she was wondering if what i she asking. She's asking about the queens. The this car- one's called a Carniolan. Uh huh. Um, yeah. So, so Slovenia is a kind of a nation
0: of beekeepers and the particular really? bee that they keep there is called a carniolan bee. And so Terry's asking, um, you know, they're great honey producers and known to be gentle species. And she wanted to kind of know if we were familiar with them. So yes. Um, but only like, uh, vicariously or sort of, because I love what I get is called a Russian carniolan hybrid. Okay. So each of the bees actually have their own kind of traits. Like we know a lot about African bees mm-hmm. and, and the Africanization and how they react to things. Mm-hmm. So there's different lineages and different species out there. And if you looked at the total, um, let me pull this up here really quick, actually. So if you go through and you look at the types of bees, you've got for us, you've got the African bee, you've got a Buckfast bee. There's the carniolan, a Caucasian, a Cardovan, Italian, and Russian. Most people know the Italian bee. Right? That's the well, go-to. Yeah, that's, that's the that's one it. that all the beekeepers use for commercial operations. Right. Um, but, so a Russian bee, there's some genetic traits in there that are very beneficial. They're very hygienic. They're very good at like Varroa management and all these other things. But they, they have not as bad of an attitude as the... Africans, but they do have a bit of a a bad rep for attitude. And so you have a bee like the carniolan. The carniolan, a true carniolan, they have a history of being very calm on the comb, which means when you're inspecting it, they're not running all over the place or flying Mm -hmm. or freaking Mm -hmm. out. They're just kind of like, hey, what's up? And when um, they have a lower instance of displaying a lot of these aggressive behaviors or defensive behaviors. So that also means they're gentler when you're going through and you're doing your inspections. They receive extremely high marks in the areas of foraging for and gathering both nectar and pollen, mm-hmm. as well as producing honey and honey storage. And they're extremely excellent at overwintering, especially in cold climates. So uh, you made the joke earlier, which was something actually Terry had asked, you know, like, is negative 50 good for bees? And and my initial response was, not it's not good for anything. To have. Yeah. <laughs> so, but these bees, like a carniolan bee would actually be very well adapted to surviving overwinter. The Russian bees are Exceptional at it surviving over winter. They, they came do from great. Siberia. Well, I don't know if they came from <laughs> Siberia, but they um, they actually they manage their brood cluster very well, so they don't expand quickly and burn through their resources when it's not time. The okay. Italians will do that. So well, yeah, they're yeah, more I, like, yeah. I do have some experience with the Carniolan genetics, but I don't. I've never actually gotten my hands on a purebred Carniolan. We always do the Russian
1: Carniolan hybrids. So I have a little bit of, of experience with right. the genetics, but not full on. Okay. And then she says she loved our podcast. She loves uh, my knowledge and your humor. No, no, no. It's your knowledge and my humor. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was saying, there my knowledge. Whatever. Right? You but, put the two together yeah, and apparently but, works. you know, we put enough BS in it. We can make anything sound good. <laughs> but uh, and I'm going to let you wrap it up.
0: Well, um, basically, so that that is our first listener question episode. And as you can see, she had a lot of questions. Some of them kind of oh, followed yeah. the same line. Some were, were just random out of left field. Sorry, um, sorry. They, that works you know, like I do. It's great, though, because... If you have a question, that's kind of the whole purpose of even the podcast. Anything that you yourself can think of when you're doing this this adventure, Mm -hmm. other people have had the same questions or the same experiences or the same problems and traumas and trials. So, for our listeners, absolutely. If you've got a question, it doesn't matter if it's very, very basic and simple, um, if it's something we haven't already addressed in the show or if it's, you know, out of left field or really complicated, shoot us an email. Send us something at info at the Hive Jive Mm -hmm. and we'll go through. We'll put it together. And like I said, we get enough compiled up. We'll do another bonus episode Mm -hmm. that'll be a listeners listener questions part two. But before we wrap up the tail end of this first bonus episode of listener questions, I did want to circle back really quick and touch back on a point that I had made earlier when we were talking about top bars overwintering up north in the northern states and whether or not they do better than a Langstroth hive. I mentioned one of our Instagram people, the Instagram follower Melissa's top bars and said that it would be a good idea to reach out to her. So I actually did that and kind of posed the question to her to get her feedback on it because she keeps top bar hives and she keeps them in Massachusetts. So that's where she's located at and they definitely have longer winters and stronger winters and colder winters than we have down here in Texas for certain. So it would be a little bit more applicable for, you know, the Massachusetts viewpoint to go back to Terry's question and then, you know, kind of give an idea about how well it will actually work in somewhere like Chicago. So in Melissa's opinion, she believes that the survival chances of a Langstroth hive and a top bar are pretty much equal regardless where you're at and what that climate is. And she feels that more than not, it comes back to the genetics of the colony and the practices of the beekeeper and just good stewardship of beekeeping more so than it does the actual container the bees are in. So it shouldn't really matter what style of container you're keeping them in. If it's a top bar, if it's a Langstroth, if it's a Warre, those different types of hives should not specifically matter. It comes back more to what you specifically do with the hives. Now, she said that the hives that she's had in instances where they did not survive, she knows exactly why they did not survive. And as she has grown and learned as a beekeeper, she has started to figure out ways where she can make sure they're better prepared for winter and make sure that they overwinter in a more successful fashion. One of the other things was I had mentioned wrapping hives because they do wrap Langstroth hives in the northern climates to help insulate them. And I asked her whether or not she wraps her top bars, and oddly enough, she has not ever wrapped her top bars to this point. One of the primary reasons of that though is because she still hasn't exactly found a good way to wrap it and insulate it without it being cumbersome and messing other things up. But what she has done is she has used insulated paneling and created like a northern wind block to help keep the winds from hitting the hive directly. And she said that at one point in time she had been told that reducing the wind on the hive itself is actually more important than insulating the hive overall because the wind, it has more of an effect on the colony than just the ambient temperature of the cold around it. So insulating a hive will do that, obviously, but if you can't insulate it, you can use a wind block. So I thought that was really interesting, and I just wanted to add that little Tidbit back onto the end here, just to kind of wrap everything up and tie it all back together and give you a perspective of, you know, yes, absolutely. You can keep a top bar hive in a Northern climate, just like you can the Langstroth hives. It's all about preparation, knowledge, and how you manage the bees and a little bit of the genetics, you know, what type of bee is inside that colony? Because some bees obviously overwinter better than other bees. Like when we talked about the Russians and the Carniolans, some of these bees that have a better genetic profile for longer, harsher winters would be a better style of bee to have inside those hives if you're up north as well. So in conclusion, that kind of wraps all that back up. Um, if you ever wanted to check Melissa out, you can find her on Instagram at Melissa's Top Bars. And she also has a blog that she does on her website. And you can find that at Melissa's And Melissa, we thank you for the feedback on that greatly.
1: And Terry, thank you. And dear, we still got a little room in Texas if you ever want to move because it's nice and warm here, man. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it gets hot
0: it does instead of negative 50 in the winter you deal with a minimum of 40 plus days of 100 plus degrees yeah. in a row with no yeah. break so you know choose
1: your battles yeah yeah and, and uh, you don't get near as much honey here that's true wah, wah, they can wah. they can raise eight or ten boxes in just a month or two yep wow Y'all are lucky, but we're
0: warmer. Thank (laughs) y'all. In the meanwhile, you can catch Ken and myself on the next regular episode of The Hive Jive.